and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Hattie Williams, news reporter, and I'm joined today by Ed Thornton, assistant editor, and Tim Wyatt, digital editor. Today in the news, we're talking about the Jesmond consecration, the Archbishop's election letter, and later on in the programme, we interview Dr Justin Thacker on his new book on global poverty. First up, Jesmond Parish Church is at the centre of a row over its assistant curate, the Reverend Jonathan Pryke after he was consecrated bishop by a breakaway South African church last weekend. Tim, you've been following the story. How did this break? Yeah, so um, we came into the office on Monday morning and actually had two separate sources had got in touch with us to tell us that they were hearing that um, uh, a clergy at Jesmond Parish Church in Newcastle, um, a conservative evangelical church, very large one in Newcastle, one of their clergy had been ordained bishop by um, the Church of England in South Africa, or as it's now known, REACH SA. Um, and so I spent most of Monday desperately trying to confirm this. Um, at first, couldn't get in touch with anyone at Jesmond or the Diocese of Newcastle. And I was calling around various other sources. And then very late on Monday, finally, um, got uh, confirmation from the Anglican Mission in England, who put out a statement confirming that this had taken place and their reaction to it. So how does this relate to GAFCON and their announcement that they're going to be appointing a missionary bishop? That's a quite interesting question, um, because... Jonathan Pryke is not going to be this GAFCON missionary bishop. Um, we're not sure who that's going to be. Yet. That was agreed uh, almost kind of 10 days ago now by the GAFCON um, primates. Um, but this is a, almost a separate move. And what's quite interesting is that it seems to have caught uh, other conservative evangelicals, the Anglican Mission in England and GAFCON UK, quite by surprise. So their initial statement said that while they, you know, wished Jesmond and Bishop Pryke well in this new endeavour, it was not something they'd agreed between themselves, and there still are separately plans to appoint another bishop um, from GAFCON to the UK. So what roles can uh, Jonathan Pryke carry out as a bishop then without this authority? So according to Jesmond Parish Church's statement, which came out on Tuesday, he's still going to spend most of his time, about 80%, they say, just working as a senior assistant curate at Jesmond Parish Church. And then the remainder of his time will be working to both um, ordain uh, men for the ministry, only men uh, who will be conservative evangelicals outside of the Church of England, but still Anglicans, and also to encourage the planting of new Anglican churches, again, outside of the Church of England, but under the auspices of the Anglican Mission in England. Um, so it's it's kind of a leadership role and is, I guess, a focus for unity for those who want to be Anglicans, but don't but don't feel they can work within the existing C of E structures. This gets quite complicated, doesn't it? Because the Anglican Mission in England have had people ordained by Kenyan bishops or Nigerian bishops in the past who are part of the Anglican Communion. But am I right in thinking REACH SA is not... Part of the Anglican Communion. That's right. It's quite complicated indeed. So Reach SA um, is a is a breakaway church that which is recognised. Its orders are recognised by the Church of England, but is not in communion, and it is not the Anglican Church in South Africa. So more than a hundred and forty years ago, um, there was a split in the then Anglican Church in South Africa over the appointment of an Anglo-Catholic bishop. And Reach SA is, is, the, is the rump, the conservative evangelical rump that split from the Anglican Church in South Africa and have continued running their own denomination in South Africa to this day. Um, so they're still Anglicans, but they're not in communion with the rest of the Anglicans, either in England or in South Africa. So why do you think that Jesmond have done this in the first place? Do they have a problem with the CV and its um, structures at the moment? 
Yes, yeah, so Jesmond Parish Church have um, quite a long history of what they would call impaired communion with the Diocese of Newcastle and its bishop, which goes back almost 20 years now to the 90s, um, when uh, the then Bishop of Newcastle, Martin Wharton, was appointed. Um, they disagree with him on issues such as homosexuality. There are also uh, conservative evangelicals who don't believe in women in leadership, and the current Bishop of Newcastle, Christine Hardman, is a woman. So there's also differences of opinion there. Um, I think they would say that uh, while they are, they would see themselves as orthodox Anglicans, they would say the rest of the Church of England, in particular the Diocese of Newcastle, is drifting away from what they would see as the historic biblical faith. And therefore, if they wish to have bishops um, who they are responsible to, they, they are no longer confident that the Church of England can provide bishops who uh, are from a theological background uh, that they would recognise. I mean, hang on, we've got Rod Thomas with impeccable Conservative Evangelical credentials, former director of, or chair of reform, who, who was consecrated Bishop of Maidstone about two years ago. Um, could, could he not have come and helped? It's a good question. I did get in touch with, with um, Bishop Rod Thomas uh, to see what his, his thoughts were on this. Um, he kind of declined to comment until he found out a bit more information, but he did make a, a point of praising uh, Jesmond Parish Church's, quote, great record of effective gospel ministry, not least because of the clarity of their biblical teaching. Um, he also noted that they had this long record of being in impaired communion with successive bishops of Newcastle because of same-sex relationships, an issue which he said had the potential to cause great disunity throughout the C of E. So a kind of mixed response from Bishop Thomas. Um, not casting them out or saying that they've acted uh, as kind of renegade conservative evangelicals, but equally um, not 100% endorsing what they've done. And as you said, the hope was by appointing uh, Bishop Rod Thomas that this would be a sign not just to conservative evangelicals that they are welcome in the church, but also that there are people in the House of Bishops who they see as their own, who they can be in full communion with. So it would definitely be interesting to find out why Jesmond Parish Church decided to go down the route of having one of their own clergy ordained by uh, a church outside of the Anglican Communion, rather than falling back on Bishop Rod Thomas, um, very much one of their own, someone who they would agree with both on women in leadership, the headship issue and on same-sex relationships. Um, that's not really been clear yet. We haven't been able to get uh, any answers from Jesmond about that, nor has uh, Bishop Rod Thomas um, responded to requests for additional comment now that the situation has become clear. Do you think this is an isolated case, or do you think people will see Jesmond as an example and perhaps take this route themselves, other parishes? Uh, that's, that's a good question. It's not really clear yet. Um, GAFCON are, are still planning to go ahead and appoint their own missionary bishop. And in fact, um, uh, Jesmond Parish Church have said in, in as some documents they released as part of a conference they held a few months ago that they see a need for at least three bishops. So in, in, it could be that there, there will be more, maybe from the Jesmond network or maybe from other conservative evangelicals. It's not really clear. But I think what is um, causing concern throughout the church is that this could, in theory, be the beginning of a kind of a church within a church or maybe even a formal schism. What I find really interesting is that Jonathan Pryke is on the council for the Anglican Mission in England, yet it sounds as if they had no idea that this was taking place. What does this say about conservative evangelicalism in the Church of England? Is it, is it splintering? It's a good question. I think there clearly is some evidence, at least, that there is not 
a unity of mind and heart within conservative evangelicals in the Church of England. Obviously, Jonathan Pryke and those at Jesmond Parish Church knew in great detail about GAFCON's plans for their own bishop, but that didn't stop them from going ahead without any significant consultation, as far as we can tell, with GAFCON or with the Anglican Mission in England. So there clearly is a difference of opinion about the best way forward, both probably in tactics and also outcome, I'd say. So, Tim, in our podcast last week, you said that there would um, be no intervention by um, the bishops or archbishops in terms of um, the general election. Um, We now know this week that the archbishops have um, released an election letter. Um, The Archbishop of Canterbury, um, in lieu of that, has denied um, that this letter, written with the Archbishop of York, included a coded endorsement of the Conservatives. Um, you actually picked up the story this week. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, that's right. I have somewhat got egg on my face, having confidently asserted that there would definitely wouldn't be any kind of um, letter from the House of Bishops or the Church of England in general about the election. And they proved me wrong last Saturday, um, publishing a, uh, a much shorter letter this time, just three pages and just from the two Archbishops rather than from the whole House which I understand had been kind of put together in quite a hurry um, because of the snap general election announcement. Um, Much less uh, political, much less comment on policy this time, Um, much more about kind of overarching values, faith, hope, love, courage, cohesion, and most controversially, stability. So they at one point talk about the importance of a concept of stability, um, which was picked up on by uh, a number of clergy in the Church of England, which have responded with their own letter accusing the um, the archbishops of uh, including some kind of coded endorsement of the Conservatives because Theresa May's election slogan has been strong and stable leadership. Um, and so the story this week is is, uh, is uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury um, during his visit in the Holy Land telling reporters that absolutely was not a, uh, a code for vote, vote Tory um, and did not signify any kind of shift to right-wing politics in fact, he, he was arguing this is actually an ancient Christian Benedictine, in fact, virtue, which um, he wants to reclaim from, from Theresa May, as it were. I think it just shows the, the risks that are entailed in making any intervention. I mean, in 2015, the bishops were accused of being Labour-supporting anti-Tory. Now you've got a letter where it's interpreted supposedly as endorsing the Prime Minister. You could be sympathetic to the idea that whatever they say, whatever they, say they will be attacked. As you say, two years ago they were attacked by Conservatives and those on the right wing of politics. Uh, this time they've been attacked uh, by some left-leaning clergy who have accused them of, quote, desperate political naivety, or at worst, an implicit endorsement of one party in this election. Um, perhaps next time there is a general election, the, uh, the archbishops will just keep their, their thoughts to themselves. Although um, Archbishop Welby does make the point, and that's, well, that's exactly the point he's making. He says, Christian faith doesn't fit onto a left-right spectrum. You can pick bits out and say, oh, that's very right-wing. You can go to the next bit and say, oh, there are a bunch of trendy lefties. And you keep going to and fro. We're not on the same axis. And Angela Tilby this week, in our comments section, thinks the whole exercise of of writing these letters is a bit of a waste of time. She says the problem is that the church has nothing specific to say about the issues in this election, which is not being better said elsewhere. I learn more about the choices before me by watching and listening to news and reading a selection of columnists. Not only are they better informed than the clergy, they tend to be ethically more rigorous and more aware that politics is in the end, as Rab Butler said, the art of the possible. 
I think for me, one of the most interesting points um, that the Archbishop's letter did cover, because it was so thin on the ground in terms of endorsing or condemning policies, was where they talked about uh, the importance of not squashing religious faith out of the political sphere. Um, so they talk about how, and what I think must be seen as a reference to the repeated grilling of Tim Farron, uh, the leader of the Liberal Democrats, about his own evangelical views on homosexuality, about how we, you mustn't use people's faith against them. Uh, they said, quote, if we aspire to a politics of maturity and generosity, then the religious faith of any election candidate should not be treated by opponents as a vulnerability to be exploited. Of course, Theresa May isn't one to leave her faith out of politics. In fact, um, on LBC Radio uh, yesterday, I believe, she was talking about how her faith had um, been her strength in difficult times, particularly losing her parents at the age of 25 um, and also uh, her and her husband's inability to have children. So Tim Farron is not the only one who talks about his faith in public. That's true, although there's a clear difference between how the press and the media have handled Tim Farron's quite evangelical uh, faith in comparison to Theresa May's uh, perhaps more um, subdued Anglican, Middle England um, expression of Christianity. Yeah, I think her expression of Christian faith is much more familiar to ordinary people who perhaps were raised with the Church of England as part of their lives um, in the local parish church and at school, so it's less likely to ruffle feathers than more evangelical expressions of faith. Let's do our quotes of the week now. Ed? My quotes of the week come from Dave Walker's cartoon on page 14. His theme this week is automation. So he has a hymn book vending machine, a coffee conveyor belt, a back pew mover, where pews are moved forward as each is filled, and a robotic warden, and he rounds off with a coping mechanism, which selects appropriate cope from vestry, cupboard, and places on shoulders. Uh, Very good. Um, Mine is from the press column this week by Andrew Brown. Never one to mince his words. He says, Watching the hideous shambles of the contemporary Labour Party from inside the Guardian offices, I've been wondering what it was that cut the party from its living roots and why it is that voters are turned to beliefs and symbols that the elites had thought entirely outmoded. The best answer I can come up with is that people long more than anything to be reassured that they, we, have a value quite independent of our usefulness and even in some sense independently of our merits. Tim? Um, yeah, my um, quote of the week is actually from uh, the back page of the Church Times where we'd normally have Ronald Bly's column, Word from Wormingford. There's a, a special column by the editor, Paul, uh, where he's talking about um, how Ronald Blythe is hanging up his pen after 24 years of writing this column and uh, more than three quarters of a million words. He, he closes uh, by quoting uh, Ronald, who says this, I'm now 94, but feel just the same as I did ages ago. I'm very conscious of the brevity of life, of things coming to an end. I don't feel remotely unhappy about it. I read, garden, people come and see me and it just goes on. I live very much in the present. I wake up in the morning feeling ever so well. I'm feeling today is the big day. When it comes to fighting global poverty, many Christians either argue for a free market solution or for a radical reform of global capitalism. Dr Justin Thacker thinks that both approaches are misguided and lack theological underpinnings. He sets out a new approach in his book, Global Poverty, A Theological Guide, published by SCM Press. I spoke to him. The reality is, is that, I mean, I see a a huge connection between global poverty and sin. 
and sin in terms of greed and injustice and the uh, desire that people have uh, simply to accumulate more in a kind of selfish way. I mean, maybe this is a slightly pessimistic view of humanity, but but um, I don't see that changing. And as a result of that, um, I think we are always going. I think Jesus was right. We are always going to have the poor with us. Now, I think, how do we respond to that? Well, you know, on the one hand, we've got this response that says, look, we can end poverty, we can solve it. And I suppose if everyone in the world was entirely virtuous, then, of course, they're right. But everyone in the world is not. We're going to have political and uh, economic leaders who are not entirely virtuous. We're going to have poverty. And actually giving that kind of false uh, message that, you know, we can do it. My fear with that is that in the long run, that's going to demotivate people when they see it not working and not ending. And I actually want a motivation for poverty that's going to last, that's going to keep the poor actually continually in focus. And I think that's about being realistic about the fact that poverty will continue. Yeah, you, you just mentioned Jesus' statement in the house of Simon the leper, you know, for you will always have the poor with you. Um, could you just outline how that's been interpreted by those both on the right and the left? They, they've used it to different ends, haven't yeah, they? Yeah, very much so. And, and what I'm trying to do is kind of steer. Well, it's not a middle path, just a different path between those two. So some on the left have uh, used it to say, look, Jesus isn't saying uh, the poor will always be there. Uh, they particularly drawn attention to the fact that it's in the home of a leprous man, Simon the leper. And what they're saying is, look, Christians, because they're Christians, will always be found in a context uh, where they're surrounded by the poor. So they're saying the message is not about the sort of inevitability of poverty. The message is about the social location of the church will always be found amongst the poor. And, and you know, to say it's about poverty being inevitable is a misreading. Uh, those on the right uh, have taken a very different interpretation and said, look, Jesus has told us poor will always be with us. Therefore, we might as well not bother trying to end poverty. And in fact, recently it's been used in the US by um, a US Republican to argue that for the removal of, of benefits effectively, because Jesus said the poor will always be with us. Therefore, we shouldn't really try and do anything to help them. Uh, I want to uh, reject both of those interpretations and say it, it simply as Jesus said it was. He's actually quoting uh, from Deuteronomy and he's saying the poor will always be with us. But precisely, this is what I think Jesus is saying, precisely because the poor will always be with us, we as Christians have to continually help them. So the left is wrong to say we can end it. The right is wrong to say we should do nothing about it. They will always be with us. And therefore, we should do something to try and, uh, uh, um, you know, make the problem uh, less significant, to, to bring it down, to reduce it, though we're not going to actually end it. You say there is a danger of short termism um, and clicktivism. Could you explain a bit more about that? Yeah. So so clicktivism is this uh, uh, idea that's kicking around at the moment. And, it, and it's I suppose the best way to think of it is simply as social activism that is entirely restricted to your activity on social media so it's about you know clicking on petitions or uh clicking likes on certain kind of campaigns um but in other words it's a form of social activism that never involves you uh really moving beyond your computer screen uh, and doing something that's actually perhaps going to cost you personally uh, and so it's so-called clicktivism it's relatively easy social activism and uh I'm not against that. I mean, I'm engaged in um, 
you know, campaigns online. But I think our efforts uh, on behalf of the global poor or our efforts with the global poor need to take us beyond just social media, uh, you know, in, in, into different kinds of activity. And often I think actually what that comes down to is they've got to hurt our bottom line. They've got to involve our uh, consumer choices, our uh, decisions about where we um, how we give away our money and how we spend our money. Uh, and it's got to be more than just, you know, which pages we have to click on or sign our names up. You talk about the dangers of short termism, but what about those campaign groups and charities who have lasted for decades and, and continue the fight against poverty who may take a different view? Um, I think they're in a bind, actually, because, I mean, and this is where um, I find myself in an interesting position as, uh, I suppose, a, a theologi theologian um, who also likes to be a social activist. And, and the problem is this. It is the case that providing a message of we can end poverty is motivating. I mean, you know, people like to have a sense of, of success. And so in the short term, if you parade that message, then you will get a good number of social activists and they will join your movement and sign up and probably donate money and so on. And so I totally understand the motivation of the established aid agencies for propagating that kind of message. My fear is that both it's not true, as I've explained, but also that it is creating or fostering a generation of social activists who are going to give up as they get older. And I think what I would, uh, and, and when I say, well, as they get older and see that it hasn't worked and poverty hasn't ended. I mean, there's quite a, a well-worn narrative, isn't there, of the young campaigner who in their uh, sort of late teens, early 20s, incredibly passionate about global justice issues, justice issues. and uh, as they uh, approach the later years of life and consumer pressures grow, uh, they settle down into a nice, uh, comfortable middle-class lifestyle. And I think what I want to see a social activist that will remain social activist for the whole of their lifetime, even when the problems uh, become difficult. And I fear for the direction of, I suppose, global or at least Western politics at the moment, that is seeing um, a real growth in compassion fatigue. And I wonder if our short termist approaches to uh, um, addressing issues of poverty is part of the reason behind or is, or is linked to that issue of compassion fatigue. And that was, that's what worries me about the future. We see a lot of bishops and clergy speaking about poverty um, and suggesting approaches to how it should be tackled. Um, do you think they adopt the right theological approach or are they too locked into the sort of either free market solutions or the more radical reform of capitalism solutions? No, actually, I mean, particularly the stuff that I've seen come out of Justin Welby well, and former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, uh, I've actually been incredibly impressed by. Um, sometimes they have... Uh, when I say institute, organize, not institutional ties, but organizational ties, you know, they are patrons of particular charities and so on, uh, have particular links to particular charities. And so understandably, they don't want to be perceived as criticize, criticizing in any way that charities work. But certainly um, what I've seen Justin Welby say about uh, global issues of poverty and Williams, I've actually been very uh, impressed by and so uh, I would share their commitment what I get from both of them or seen from both of them is the sense that there are immediate needs on the ground 
We need to address those immediate needs. And that is about direct forms of aid and so on, of which I'm very supportive. But there's also a bigger picture. There's a bigger global picture. There's a bigger theological picture that we also need to think about, address uh, and be concerned about. And they've also both suggested that perhaps we are insufficiently um, sort of uh, too narrow minded, too focused on immediate forms of aid. And actually what we need to do is kind of broaden our horizons and look at that bigger picture as well. Uh, and in that sense, what I'm saying in my book uh, echoes uh, and I suppose amplifies in some ways uh, a lot of what Owen and Justin have said as well. We've just seen the Prime Minister commit to the 0.7% target on aid. Is, is that something you'd welcome? I think it's a good thing, but I think uh, we're misleading ourselves if we think that that's all that's required. So my, my issue with the 0.7% target is not that we shouldn't fulfil it. We should. That's great. But I have a real concern that we might think that if we fulfil the 0.7% target, then we've done all we need to do. And that sort of matters. And I can go on uh, living my life in the way that I have, not bothering to think about uh, my consumer choices, uh, not bothering to campaign on issues of tax or trade justice because, well, we're giving the 0.7 percent. It's a bit like the equivalent of the, the individual, I suppose, who, because they give a certain amount to uh, uh, some global charities, thinks it doesn't matter if they then pay attention to issues of fair trade products and so on. There's a a great con uh, quotation from the liberation theologian uh, Gustavo Gutierrez when, when he talks about aid as being a, um, a, a cheap, uh, a good conscience at a cheap price, you know, that it makes us feel better about ourselves in the West without really costing us too much. And, and I suppose that would be my concern about the 0.7 percent. It's not that I'm against it at all. I'm very happy with it. But does it just buy us a good conscience and enable us to go on living our capitalist lifestyles in a way that doesn't really challenge us? Where it hurts? I, I really think the big issue for Christians is both about campaigning on issues on tax and trade justice. And there are some uh, Christian development organizations that do that really, really well. Um, Christian Aid and Tear Fund, I would mention HAFOD as well. But that also has to feed through into the way we live our lives. It needs to feed through into where we buy our food and what kind of food we buy. It needs to feed through into what kind of clothes we buy and where we buy them from. And what are the sources for the products that we're purchasing? Which organizations and multinational corporations are we supporting? through our consumer choices. And I would want to see far greater activism amongst Christians on those issues. Where do we put our investments? You know, if we have savings uh, and, and so on, uh, which, you know, to what extent do we ensure that our, our investments are only in those uh, organizations or, or uh, financial institutions that have some kind of ethical code? I think there's huge scope for a change in behavior uh, for individual Christians in terms of their consumer ethical choices. That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find news, analysis, comment, book reviews and more on our website. You can also find our latest subscription offers at churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music this week was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode. And thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.